Hello and welcome to the School Counseling Spotlight. My name is Jay Anthony Elizondo, and today we are talking about working with crossover youth. Here's a few reasons why. Crossover youth are youth that are involved in both the child welfare and juvenile justice systems. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, there are approximately 424,000 foster youth nationwide. According to a 2014 report by the Southern Education Foundation, 50% of former foster youth will attend college, 8 will graduate, and less than 3% will earn a degree by 25 years old. According to a 2015 report completed by the Ohio Juvenile Justice Coalition, nationally up to 29% of youth 10 or older involved in the child welfare system had cases in the juvenile justice system. Today, we will be talking about research that has been done and how to bridge the gap for crossover youth to increase successful access to higher education and academic success. That brings me to this episode's big thanks up front. I'd like to thank Dr. Robert Martinez for taking time to discuss his work and for discussing the Camps to College program with me. I'd like to also thank you for listening. If you'd like more resources to help you work with crossover youth, please visit our website at uscc.uncc.edu. Click the link for podcasts and you'll find pages with information based on each episode that contains resources for homeless youth, youth in ELL programs, and crossover youth. Now, without any further delay, let's meet today's guest. My name is Robert Martinez. I am at the University of uh, North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the School of Education, uh, specifically in the school counseling program. Um, Tell me a little bit about your research and uh, what inspired you to conduct that research. Sure, sure. So so my research is on um, post-secondary access and readiness. So how do we get kids, particularly in adolescence, to how do we prepare them, ready them for the transition into post-secondary education and those opportunities? And my work really focuses on underserved at Promise Youth. And that ties into the research that we're going to talk about today with crossover youth. But I like to start with with the definition of crossover youth, because when I've I've been working with this group of students for a long time, I've never referred to them as crossover youth. And when you mentioned it in our first meeting, I was like, "What? That sounds really interesting." And then I kind of gleaned from what you were saying what what it actually meant. Um, could you give us a definition of what crossover youth wh- who they are? Yeah. So so like you said, uh, you know, there are several terms have been used to describe uh, youth who are involved in both the child and juvenile justice systems, right? And and Hertz, I'm going to use Hertz as uh, provides in 2010 provides some provided three terms that have been used to describe these these youth, right? These at promise youth, these opportunity youth, with differences uh, that I'll note in between. So when we think about crossover youth. Uh, Crossover youth are, are 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 youth who have experiences of of maltreatment and also engaged in delinquency, regardless of the time order involvement with both systems. Right, so that's just one. So I may cross over from child protective services, and now I have a delinquency case. Right, so I just cross over. 
that way. Uh, the other one is duly involved youth are, are a subgroup of crossover youth who are concurrently receiving services from both the child welfare and juvenile justice. So they're duly involved youth, right? So they're not like finishing the crossover as I started here and then now I'm crossing over here uh, to juvenile delinquents or back and forth. So juvenile to uh, child protective services where duly involved have cases open in both courts, right? And then there's also this duly adjudicated youth or an additional kind of subgroup of duly involved youth who are uh, simultaneously adjudicated by the two systems of child welfare and juvenile justice, right? So you have these three different categories of youth, really crossover youth, and then you have this um, subgroup of crossover, uh, which are duly involved, and then you have these duly adjudicated youth, right? And they all fit under these at-promise opportunity youth kind of demographics of, of students that we work with in K through 12, right? Even through preschool, right? Um, hopefully you won't find any preschool youth, but you just never know. Uh, you know uh, but I've seen kids as young as nine, eight, that have uh, a case open in both because of the severity of the the, the abuse, the maltreatment, and then the the behavioral outbursts that happen because of the maltreatment. So how sometimes these kids have a hard time uh, emotionally regulating when they're dysregulated. Uh, they may have a lot of interpersonal conflict. So you have these factors that kick in because of the maltreatment or the adverse childhood experiences that these kids have, have come with because of the, the abuse, the sexual, physical, emotional abuse, which then perhaps leads them towards juvenile delinquency. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about the research you've done with the Camp College program and what that program is and where, where it's taking place. Yeah, yeah. So so kind of maybe adding a little bit to is, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in LA Unified School District. And before LA Unified School District, I worked in a clinical mental health facility that worked with foster youth, juvenile youth, uh, delinquent you know, that had, um, that are crossover. So, or really involved crossover students, right? Where they have cases open. So I, I work with a lot of these kids and parents in, in the residential facilities, as well as eventually working in wraparound services and providing services in the community for them. And we did a really great job. However, what we did notice is that it took a lot of coordinations of, of services uh, between the Department of Child and Family Services, Department of Corrections or Probation, and school districts. And a lot of time, these kids had a lot of different criteria that they had to overcome, follow. So perhaps, for example, you know, the judge or this one student uh, had to uh, check in with their probation officer every day at school, right? Um, and, and Alley Unified, what was special about it is that you had social workers at schools that, that had a lot of students who had cases open with Department of Child and Family Services or with Department of Probation. So they had to check in with those probation officers or they had to check in with their social worker. Parents had to meet requirements. If parents didn't meet requirements, then um, it would have an impact on the kids. You know, so there was a lot of different 
requirements that these kids had to follow. And then also school, right? So going to school and showing up to school and being on time to school and not being tardy or ditching. And what were some of those laws that were passed uh, that would get a kid violated for missing school too many times, right? And uh, so what I noticed that we had to bring all these people together. And a lot of times they didn't know what they were doing, as in each other were doing different things, but kind of doing almost the same thing sometimes and duplicating services, right? So the continuity of care was always there. It was just off because they just didn't know what the other hand was doing from the foot, right? (laughs) So I did that a lot, a couple of years, about five years, and then ended up in LA Unified School District where this study uh, developed from, right? Where this program developed, not the study. The program developed was just trying to figure out how do we get these kids who are in camp or at a foster placement or a non-public school system, and they're starting to go back into the general you know, school population. And what we also knew that is once those kids were getting a lot of services at the camps where they were returning from uh, and back into the regular school general population, you know, like project-based learning activities where they were focused on understanding uh, a big problem and, you know, or some type of issue going on in the world or in their community. And then they propose a project around this. And so there was a lot of collaborative learning, a lot of support and services for those kids to have those opportunities to kind of think about these issues. And then a lot of times they would they would do well, they leave camp and eventually end up back into their general school. And there was, you know, depending on the school, there wasn't a more project-based learning, right? <laughs> now they're in a, you know, six or eight period day and each teacher has a different way of delivering that instruction. It wasn't very linear and aligned uh, expectations. So you can see how that could kind of set up the kid returning back to school. And they also had therapeutic services on camp, at the camp and all their supports and services. And you end up back at a, at a school where those things may not be available or easily accessible. So what did LAUSD do to bridge that gap? So what LA Unified did was put together a, a group of, of counselors that would be stationed at courts or Department of Child and Family, uh, Family Court, as well as juvenile court court as well, right? And also at camps. So those kids, they would also be able to follow those kids and understand where they're at and what schools would fit, but also connect them to a, a specific counselor or perhaps a teacher at a school site that can help transition that kid back into the school sites, right? And those counselors were pupil service and attendance counselor, PSA counselors that would do that. Um, and they would come from the neglected and or delinquent program. They were always thinking about different ways of how can we serve these kids better, right? And what are some of the gaps that they can fill? And and what they did was put together this camps to college program. And this camps to college program uh, really specialized on helping transition that student from camp back into the community. I'm sorry to interrupt, but can you describe the school where this was taking place? This school was located in downtown LA, and it was all part of LA Unified School District. And um, and they were they put this program together, and they wanted to know how effective it was. They wanted to understand um, what were some of the the gaps that they can fill, and and learn from the kids as well about how they can serve them better. 
And that's kind of how this program kind of evolved and, and, and also learning from kids from camp. So they'd go, we'd go to camp and go visit the, the centers and, um, and talk to kids uh, about their experiences and some of the needs that they may need when they leave so that they could help inform what administrators and teachers and counselors can do to help better uh, build out this program. Because what they were thinking about doing is piloting these schools in each small dis- in each district throughout out, LA Unified so that you'd have one of these schools uh, nearby that was specific to that that district and that context and what that's those uh, those kids needed in that area. Um, so that's how this emerged. And what they wanted to do is um, help kids, specifically these kids, uh, transition into post-secondary opportunities. And so what were the be- what were some of the best ways to do that is continue project-based learning, continue to uh, support them emotionally and, and socially, as well as career-wise. So they focused on career exploration and post-secondary readiness and what does that look like? Uh, how do we encourage these kids to how do we encourage and motivate them to understand the utility of education and and access their strengths um, in a way that, you know, even though they had uh, done some some things in the community that got them into trouble, but some of those things that they did were, you know, very um, protective and promotive. And how can we reframe those behaviors into a positive way of, of, of uh, staying motivated in school. So, you know, for example, a kid was like, well, I, you know, I sold drugs and, and I know how to sell drugs. And so then, you know, well, that's awesome. You know, it, it, it's, that's great that you understand how to negotiate systems in your community. And it's great that you have this entrepreneurial spirit that can be really transitioned into some type of other business, right? So it's really understanding how to break that down in a way that acknowledges those, those, those promotive and protective resources and cultural resources that they bring and to kind of help them negotiate, negotiate and reconceptualize how do you how to use those strengths in a better, in a positive way. So, so yeah, that's that's what this camp really was about, and I and uh, and these administrators really um, wanted to figure out a way to help maximize it, help build it out, learn what were some gaps and what were some some areas of continuing to do the same thing, right? Um, so what we did was, you know, I was like, well. You know, we're all involved in this, and the kids, this, the administrators, and myself, and we're like, well, what are some questions that you have? What are some of the questions that the kids had? And this is where that participatory piece comes in, because it was like, well, okay, we put this together, but we didn't put this together as a in a participatory manner, right? We just knew that there was a gap. We we're going to fill it, and we we're going to we're going to say this is what what we're going to do now. Let's take a step back and let's start learning and and from each other and let's start listening to each other's voices in a way that that would benefit everybody. They came up with this idea 
uh, about World Cafe Styles because part of the participatory piece is like educating them a bit, but also taking a step back and letting them explore some of the, the questions that they had, uh, but also learning about the questions that students had. So they, they can have a voice in this as well. Um, so yeah. Well, what were some of the questions that, that students were having about everything or what was their take on the, on the program? I'm curious what, what those voices were saying. From a World Cafe style interview piece to it, uh, kids really wanted to, well, I'll start with the administrators. Do you, want to, do you want to define quickly or at least give a, a little explanation of World, World Cafe and what that, sure. what that looks like? Yeah. yeah. So the, the cafe approach really is supposed to create this relaxed, informal, and imaginative conversation environment, right? Facilitating uh, constructive engagement around complex issues and critical questions. So it's, it's, we come together, it's like going to a campsite fire or a cafe, and you're like, wow, you know, here's some questions that I have, and here are some questions that you may have, and then here are some of the, the ways that we could actually answer those questions and also get feedback from others that are part of this to understand, are these the questions that, that need to be answered, right? So it's, yeah. it's very relaxed, imaginative, and um, communal uh, in a way that nobody in the room has the direct authority or power. <laughs> Trying to, to, to deconstruct that power role. So, so we had these general big uh, research questions around the study, but within it, the administrators and, and students had their own World Cafe style questions to help facilitate uh, this imaginative process through World Cafe style um, uh, reflection. So yeah, so I think that that that's that's what World Cafe is, and okay. it's kind of neat. Yeah, that's great. And then so now, what were some of the perspectives that came out of those those conversations? Yeah, so you know when we think about crossover youth, some of those the things that crossover youth identified as being important. Uh, within the findings, right, if we're thinking about results and finding, is is that building relationships on radical, authentic caring is important to them. So for counselors, teachers to be really strength-based, very focused about the questions that they ask, but also being honest and open and straightforward with them. That, mm-hmm. You know, some of the kids are like, just just tell us what you're saying. Don't Don't sugarcoat it. Right. Um, we know, you know, like one of the kids or the students um, participants in the study, it was like, don't f- around with us. Just yeah. we know we f- up. Like, excuse my language, but that's a direct quote. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we're hard to deal with. And we still want the same opportunities. Right. right? right. Just be true and real with us. And, and we'll, we'll 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 start trusting and 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 believing in what you may have to bring to the table for us. You know, we've, we've all had hard lives. Mm-hmm. We come from these neighborhoods that are uh, very vibrant, unique, and beautiful, and can be challenging all at the same time. So, so one of the biggest, th- one of the things that they recommend in school counselors is just being, just being radically authentic, but do it in a caring manner with them. That was one thing that emerged 
The other thing is that that emerged from the results where we are worth the rigor. So we are worth not only you being radical with us, but we understand the shit that we carry. And we also want to be challenged and we want to have the opportunities that other kids have, right? And they, they mentioned like, I know those IB kids get all that cool stuff. I want to have the same opportunities as them. I want to experience science. I want to experience going to a college on a college tour. Even if I may not go to that college, I don't care. <laughs> They're like, I just want to be exposed to these things so I can see things beyond my neighborhood. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was one of the things. Put us in, in tough classes and give us the supports that we need so that we can navigate that. Don't just assume that we're not ready. Right. Give us a chance. You know, we are worth that rigor that emerged. And the, the other one is encourage us, keep encouraging us, right? Which seems simple. And in the literature, it, it's, it comes up all the time, right? You know, encouraging, being humble, uh, encourage us, you know, we don't get that a lot. Uh, they just see our case and they see us coming into the schoolhouse and they're already dropping their head and they're like walking away from us. We see that. Uh, don't think we don't. Uh, we know we have our stuff and we still want to feel encouraged. We still want to be cheerleaded and we still want to feel seen. Right. Um, and we know when we're not feeling seen and yeah. we know when we're not welcomed or we, we don't belong or we're not belong. We don't feel like we belong in this in this school. So those are some of the three main things that emerge from the results of this study. Mm-hmm. The, from the administrator researchers, the administrators, all four of them, they've been in the in the district or in juvenile corrections for decades, right? So they they're they're well experienced Chicano Chicanas that have been in the school district for for a number of years and in the community and live in the community. Mm-hmm. So they and they have friends and family members that have been crossover youth, foster care youth. So they take this to heart. But it it was the moment they realized when they all came together, that was the most important time or the most important phase for them as as administrators that they started learning about each other. And when I say learning about each other, not just who they are, you know, personally, but what each other's role was in serving these kids. So really focused and defining what they did and how they did it and why they did it and what type of programming and services that they provide so that they can understand some of the gaps and some of the areas that they can really hone in on so that they can improve that communication with with each other, but also understand how they're assessing things so that they can support and learn from that data. I think that was some of the clear, it, it is this coherence moment for them that allowed them to put all of this programming and all these people in place throughout the district to get to a point where they're putting a camps to college program together, right? So it, it did take time. It took a decade for them to get to this point. And they did it through, you know, having these great lion meetings that they called, which is they bring in all these people together to talk about big problems and, uh, and to learn about each other's role and to, you know, while we need a specific telephone line, in schools so that probation officers can talk to each other and it'd be confidential. Like all of these small little things cascaded into having all these support systems or these this web of support yeah. 
um, or this this network of support for these kids that were in foster care, that were in juvenile care, that were in Department of Mental Health care, right? So, yeah. so you had all of these systems coming together that were always there, but they were just fragmented a bit. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I think those are some of the main things that emerged from the administrators, which was coherence, focus, collaboration, being data aware, but also being able to to maximize the the utility of the data with each other was important and and bringing in partners to the table to help facilitate change in the district. Yeah. For me as as I started thinking and, and putting things into this discussion about what can we do, right? And some of the suggestions I had uh, which was to one Let's let's try to simulate college and career classes, right? So how can we do that? That's that's a very easy. It's like it seems simple, but it it, it could be challenging, yeah. especially when you don't have the right faculty who believe in that and the skill, the knowledge, you know, the foundational knowledge, the the contextual knowledge, the skills, and the practice to work with this group alone. So what? did they need to do to help create PD? I was going to ask about that because, you know, thinking of my experience, I worked in a um, alternative education setting, independent study um, sort of work. And with students, I try to make sure students knew when they came to see me, they were going to get their shot. Like they were going to get access to what they, what they felt they um, wanted access to. They were going to get offered access to a lot of things that you've discussed already. But the, the roadblocks happened outside of that. I mean, from all the way from how people greeted them at the door to how their teachers were interacting with them. Some teachers had a hard time working with students who had come out of a camp or had come out of um, some situation that now led to them having a probation officer or something along those lines. So I'm curious what, if anything came up in, in the research or throughout your time working with, with everyone, if that was ever brought up or addressed or how people went about working with staff members who maybe had a hard time working with these, um, with these students. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it is hard, you know, that's hence why the camps to college program, they were able to like really hand select okay. across the district yeah. that really had an investment, but also had an investment in, in learning and, and broadening their scope of practice. So the principal and the, and the administrators were able to hand select those teachers and the counselors or the counselor, right? So that's one way that they were able to do that, right? Because they understand context and systems and and all these other values, beliefs and morals that people bring with them and their thoughts on these students. The other way that PSA, I would say this program was going into the community and trying to educate programs, schools, around this perhaps and and sometimes they were able to do pds okay so you may have a psa counselor that was in your school site at the time and they would do a a pd right on how do you help manage absences and how do you increase ditch not increase but decrease you know uh ditching and the clue and how what kind of incentives but also part of that was how can i work with the administrator in the school site to start believing that these services are important because what we know is the administrator, principal, and the APs have a massive effect on what happens at the schools and the teachers 
and the counselors and the social workers and the school psychologists and the nurses and everybody else in the, in the schoolhouse. So how can we collaborate, but also consult the administrators on some of these things from policy and procedures, right? And uh, just understanding policy and procedures and how do you register these kids mm-hmm. was a, a massive task. And how do you consult with the register personnel so that they understand like, hey, here is the policy, here is the procedure. Um, and even though we may not want this student personally at this school, there is law and, and, and all these other things that we must follow and also make sure that we're following. If not, then there's other avenues that we could take as a district, perhaps, you know, attorneys calling from the district, making sure that people are following these policies and procedures and what are the consequences to understanding trauma-informed practices or adverse childhood experiences. It takes time. It also takes new folks coming in as well as pre-service folks that are learning and universities that are training and teaching these pre-service folks that are going to be teachers, that are going to be counselors, that are going to be social workers, that are going to be school psychologists to understand these, these youth. Everybody has to know all of these these new concepts, these new ways of working with kids from adverse childhood experiences all the way to cognition, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and promoting academic and, and career awareness. So everybody has to be aligned. And that's where that coherence piece comes from. And, and it does take time, but it also takes leadership, even at the, the district level. And we know that sometimes when you have changeover, then you lose momentum a bit especially yeah. with leadership that may have been like, for example, this program, um, there's a change in, in leadership uh, at the highest level within this district. And that changed some of this programming because they had a different directive. And then you get leadership that was in these positions. They go find another position because it's not the same direction that they were going. Uh, so you lose that momentum. So then you have to catch up again, to a point where it's like, well, this is a great program, but we started it, but now it has to be deconstructed because the new leadership might not believe in this. Right. Um, so the resources or the fundings might not be there anymore. So for new counselors, if a new counselor were to come into that situation where, let's say leadership did just change and a program like this was, I don't want to say derailed, but definitely, like you said, momentum slowed down. It sounds like, judging from some of the things you've already said, one thing for a school counselor in that position to focus on might be um, educating faculty, educating staff, mm-hmm. working with them to make sure that they understand how to support students um, in the situation, how to support getting them access to all the opportunities every other student has and understanding legally, right? Some of those um, requirements because for mm-hmm. them, I mean, they have a certain set of rights and the same rights as any other student on campus. So Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like that's what you're saying, but I don't know if there's anything else maybe I missed or. No, no, you're, you're right on. Right. So it's as, as if I'm thinking about school counselors or I'm thinking about social workers or school psychologists, and we think about ethics and, and, and law, Mm -hmm. our number of priority is to the student, right. Then the family, then the school, then the community. Right. It's basically in that order. So we're always trying to fight for our students and advocate for our students in a just way so that they have a voice 
but also we're not going to, you know, as, as people who are working in, in, in schools where you do have that leadership change, it's about collaborating and consulting and providing opportunities to develop an interpersonal relationship with your administrator and to catch them up and let them know about the work that you've done, what you, where you're going, what are the results of that work? Because that's what the first thing they're going to ask, right, is what are the outcomes of this? Mm-hmm. And really having a, a strong um, logic model, uh, a strong documentation, yeah. and as well as the social work and school psychologists, right? So that they can all be aligned with each other and say, hey, this is important. This is work. This is what's based off of the, the community and some of the, the needs within the community. And we we found you know, really wonderful outcomes on this academically, right? Uh, Social emotionally, as well as career-wise. So I always think about the ABCs, which is attendance, behavior, and and coursework. (laughs) So thinking about that and how do you move the needle on that a bit, right? We know that administrators, again, have the highest effect. Teachers are next and school personnel services or People personnel services have the next effect. So you can move that needle a little bit, you know, and you got to show your work a bit uh, and, and understand yeah. that it, it is a bit political in these systems. And these systems can be can be detrimental to students and policy can be very dangerous for students. And, and how do you challenge that as a as a as a leader? I've, I've known school districts where social SAL, social emotional learning work is not something that is promoted because some of the community members or the PTA believe that it might be um, too socialist uh, mm-hmm. in a way of helping kids work together with each other, right? So how do you navigate that um, to where all we want to do is social-emotional work at the next rural school district, right? So, or the right. school district. So it, it, it just depends on on your contact context and and the environment and who's what are those beliefs and morals of that that community so you always have to balance that and always be aware of that um, when you're putting these programs together but also learning from the community and partnering with community members and seeing where are those gaps that they think need to be filled where you may think this is it and they're like, no, that's not it. Uh, and right. it just doesn't matter. And then you're wondering why you have this beautiful manual on your desk <laughs> of amazing yeah. modules and activities and lessons. And it's just sitting yeah. it's because you didn't get buy-in. You didn't get, you didn't get feedback. You didn't collaborate with others. You didn't, you know, ask community members if this is what is needed. So you're always constantly thinking of those things, especially uh, when you work in schools. Yeah. Um, I, know I got a little off track. You you were talking about some of the suggestions for the, that the article had for school counselors, and we yeah, talked about yeah. um, simulating college and career classes, and then I started talking about working with yeah. staff members. Yeah. But the next the next one was um, involving crossover youth in decision making processes, and that's something that um, mm-hmm. you've talked about a little bit in terms of giving students a voice. And I don't know if you want to speak to um, yeah to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, you think about engaging crossover students and and listening to them, understanding what their needs are, understanding their strengths, what they bring to the to the table, having them be involved in in baking the cake, right? Like get them involved, ask them, have them go out and interview people with you, get them engaged in 
uh, emotionally, behaviorally, and cognitively. Like this is all goes back into getting them active, academically engaged and connected to the school and having a sense of belonging. So those are some of the things that you can do as a school counselor building out these programs, right? Is if you have a population in mind, go ask them. Uh, don't be afraid to let them be a part of the cake making uh, experience because you'll be amazed how amazing they are. Prioritizing and making sure you ask families, right? Meet with family members, meet with community members. Um, their voices are important because they're part of the student's voice, right? And, and they can help. Um, they can help motivate. You might find a, a aunt, a tío, or a, 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 you know, a, a padrino or a nino or somebody that, that could come in and, and may be able to support the cause, right? And they might have a big network throughout the, the community that you may not know of. Um, you may go to, you know, I'm thinking the boxing gym, you know, I'm thinking of this boxing gym in Hollenbeck and it's right in the middle of, of a center of LA and that's people go in and out. And how do you get those coaches and those people in the community? And how do you get the police department to, to, to join in and, and give up the, give up the seat and the one and listen, um, churches, all these people, all these voices are important. And uh, it starts with understanding what those, those students need. And how do you build from that and how those students can really be a part of that, that cake making process. I think that, that that's one of the big things, right? Actively involve them. Right. Uh, don't just say you're going to. Yeah. And then once you have the information, you you're, it's gone. Yeah. They're gone. Okay. Thank you. Checkbox. I did my, my due diligence and um, no ethical issues happened during this one. Right. right? <laughs> well, I'll add to that too. I'll say, you know, in my experience, it's, it's not just a, uh, it, sometimes you could, you could meet resistance in the situations too, because, you know, you represent a system to a lot of people, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, I'll just add that, you know, in my experience, you know, you have a parent meeting and, you know, at first you might get one or two people and, you know, hopefully by the end of the school year, you have a dozen. And then maybe by the end of the next year, mm -hmm. you have 24, but it's just a matter of, of building it. It takes, it takes a while. And I would, I would just encourage everybody to, you know, power through that, that wall that you might run into here and there, because the people might be skeptical of your intentions and, you know, they have their reasons for that. So you just got to work through it. Be persistent. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, go be involved in the community. Mm -hmm. They see you and you see the, and the kids see you, you know, even shopping at the market, you know, the, the, the students will look at you like, oh, my God, there's Mr. Martinez. Uh, oh, he's real. Right. Yeah, we're real. Yeah, you know, I'm buying, you know, jalapenos for the huevo rancheros that I'm going to make later on tonight. You know, and that's the time to I'm buying tortillas. Right. And um, you meet with the parent. And those are some awesome conversations uh, mm -hmm. that I've had with parents and, and students. And they come back into the school and and that goes a long way within the community, right? It gets, hey, I seen, you know, Mr. Martinez and he, he's, he's around, so you better be good, right? <laughs> or you know, tell Mr. Martinez that you're not doing something, right? So those are things and it takes time. It takes a lot of energy and time and persistence, right? And, and a lot of shifting, uh, shift and persist, persisting, right? Yeah. <laughs> Along the way, so... And it's not going to happen overnight. And you're going to come in with a hammer 
okay, that's cool. Try to, you do it. And uh, you're going to miss a lot of uh, the beautiful things that you're destroying something that may have been working in a way that you never knew. So just be cautious, be careful, especially, you know, you're impacting a lot of people's lives. That ties into um, the next thing on the list here, which is uh, providing strengths-based engaged programming. And um, I, I don't see that happening without the that first step of connecting with the community. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you want to add to strengths-based programming. Yeah, yeah. So you start learning from the voices of the students, right? Your participants. And they start saying, hey, this works, this worked, this didn't work. Yeah. Don't do that. This is just, I'm just there. It's making me angry. Right. I'm bored. Don't put me in this stuff. Um, But yeah, you start off with the voice of the students. You start off with the voice of the parents in the community. And then you start looking at building um, uh, programming through a strength based approach. Right. So for these kids, they realize that um, mindfulness practices help them uh, dysregulate themselves. Right. So you you like, well, what are some of the the mindfulness practices that work. Well, we started uh, lighting um, uh, candles, right? And there were the uh, kind of Catholic style candles Mm -hmm. and somebody would bring in a candle and they would talk about the, they would talk about the importance of that saint. They would really focus on the light. And, And so this was a mindfulness moment for them. So understanding culturally, what were some of the things culturally that they found important and how could they engage each other with that that cultural phenomenon that they all experience right that's one like the other the other useful thing was um helping them regulate uh learning how to regulate and and create friendships and build relationships in a positive way they didn't understand how to do that or they they knew of it but they never really practiced it mm-hmm. so that was something that they talked about as as an important thing that counselors can do with them specifically in the classrooms and so that they can see each other practice. That was another thing. And, but they were always talking about the importance of, of being strength-based. So maximizing their, their, their culture, their heritage, their racial, ethnic makeup, and their identity in, in building out these things, uh, these services for them, making sure that the counselors knew the community and the type of kids that they served was the other thing, right? And to recognize that when it when we drop our head, it's not because we're being disrespectful to you. It's it's something simple as just we respect you. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And we could talk about the phenomenon of bowing our head in, in the Latino community and and deconstructing colonizer mentality and all that other stuff, but that, that's another conversation. But that yeah. was something that they experienced and expressed, which is all part of the, you know, within the literature that we know, it's it's generally known. And just remembering those 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 key kind of motivators uh, around building uh, strength-based programming for those kids to keep them engaged. Yeah. Understanding the, the systemic issues that these communities had to encounter. Yeah. And it's really important for school counselors and teachers and administrators to understand how they got there, right? It's not just because they were a bad kid. It's because there was a, a history of trauma that has been following this kid, a generations of trauma and, and that have followed these kids to where they are at today. 
and understanding how those systems have played and contributed to that um, is really important. And, and finding that that point where you can start as a school, as an individual, to start hopefully to repair it a bit or to acknowledge that it's not working, to acknowledge that it's racist, to acknowledge that it's not promotive, it's not protective, and to de- destroy it, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's something as a as an anti-racist school counselor or just somebody that is really in, wants to improve the lives of kids and communities is to identify those chokes, those moments, those challenges and barriers, or I call it chokes, right? Like there's this choke, there's this cultural collision and, and barrier that's in the way that that is systemic, that's racist, that is that is biased towards a group. Yeah. And really break it down and who does it benefit and why does it benefit and why do we still have it? Just just go after it, right? So that was some of the things that as a counselor educator, you have to really recognize and address those racial mm-hmm. and ethnic disparities and the causes of them, right? So that that's the the next kind of recommendation. The other last recommendation is really emphasizing academic achievement and engagement again, right? So we'll come back to just how do we emphasize that and and what do we do and what can we do to to facilitate academic? We understood, we we recognize that project-based learning, understanding, being civically engaged, uh, identifying like real life social problems and how that those kids can really deconstruct it and come up with new ways of, of, of programming around it, right? So that's something that you can do even as a counselor when you're putting your groups together. It's, okay, we have this group. What are some of the things and strategies and goals that we may have as a group that we think might be important? So um, having them come up with the group norms, and again, this is very counselor 101, but also giving up the one, Um how do you get those kids engaged academically? How do you get them to a point where you understand how do you emotionally, cognitively, and behaviorally get them engaged? What are, you know, when we think about racial ethnic identity literature and research, what does in-group, out-group look like for these kids? And and what's the importance of that? How are kids shifting and persisting with their coping is another area that you can really look into uh, social emotional learning. And, you know, how do we get kids to be engaged when it, when they're not emotionally regulated, uh, when they're dysregulated and they don't have strong interpersonal skills that are promotive. So there's a lot of different things that you can use. And then also from a critical lens, this is all from a very critical lens is, is you know, utilizing, you know, this critical race theory to help you understand that we can't treat kids all the same. And uh, even though we may have this model like ASCA and it's comprehensive in scope, and everybody, you know, gets the same thing, you know, that's, we have to really think about what that really means as practitioners, as educators. um, And uh, are we meritocratizing what we're doing? And we don't want to do that. And we want to make sure that we are providing those really culturally informed practices that are promotive and protect that and that promotive. Uh, based off of students' community cultural wealth and their strengths and their funds of knowledge, conocimientos, and all of that fun stuff that these communities bring. So, and that's how you get kids academically engaged. Yeah. It, it seems simple. It, it, it's a lot of work, and 
Uh, well, it's not simple. It's a lot of work and a lot of work for you to make sure that you keep yourself engaged and educated around all of those those concepts that are out there um, and and best practices. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time today. I am going to um, make sure to find as many resources as possible, link them to the webpage um, like I did with some of the other episodes. So a lot of these things do sound involved and difficult, but when you have the right resources and you have the right support, uh, it gets a little easier. So um, anything you can send my way, I'll be sure to include and I'll start doing some digging and make sure that uh, there is a place for school counselors to go who want to start acting on these ideas in their schools. Um, yeah. So you have that support. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and don't forget to lean on each other. Right. Oh, I yeah. think the last thing is lean on each other, learn from each other, be open, be vulnerable. Um, if you're not vulnerable, then, you know, the trust piece won't happen. Uh, it, it takes time for that trust to happen. And the only way it does happen is through vulnerability and humility and educating yourself around certain topics, having a strong community to help you be aware of some of those blind spots that you may have is really important. That wraps up today's episode. If you'd like more information on how you can help crossover youth on your campus, please visit uscc.uncc.edu and click on the podcast link. Once there, you will find links to other episodes with a bank of resources that you can use to provide services to different groups of youth on your campus. I'd like to thank Dr. Martinez for his time today, and I'd also like to thank you for listening. Have a great day.